from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. And I think part of that is the curiosity of a writer, too. When you see something that you don't know, do you reject it? Are you scared of it? Or do you, do you go you know, faster into it? I've, I've always um, poked at things. I've always asked too many questions. But we do. I think we often misunderstand each other and that, and that we are not spending as much time as, as perhaps we could be being curious and having compassion. I think empathy is really a writer's superpower. I'm Sarah Fenske. The new novel by Melissa Scholes Young introduces us to a family of four daughters in Cape Girardeau. It's 2008, and life is not easy. Their fourth-generation family business is being sustained by loans and creative accounting. Running a pest control company is hardly glamorous in the best of times, but now the economy is in deep recession. And while the eldest daughter, Maggie, dreams of leading the business back to sustainability, competitors and customers alike aren't sure they trust a young woman to run it. Maggie's sisters are preoccupied with troubles of their own, but then their father, Robbie, dies. And suddenly the sisters and their mother must come together to protect the hive and their family. The book is called The Hive. It's an engrossing read with a strong sense of place, and it's the second novel from Hannibal native Melissa Scholes Young. She's also a professor of literature at American University in Washington, D.C., and she joins us today in advance of her virtual reading tonight at Left Bank Books. Melissa Scholes Young, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. My roots are in the Midwest, and it's great to be back. Well, we are so glad you could join us. I really enjoyed this novel. I have to ask, though, what came first for you? Did you have the idea to write about a family with four sisters, or were you interested in exploring a family-run pest control business? Well, I was raised in a family-run pest control business, so that territory is is very familiar to me. But this isn't this isn't my family story. Um, it really the story really began because I knew I wanted to write about. 2008, I wanted to talk about the recession in middle America and the idea of growing fear and and how that line of fear really impacts us. Um, And so I knew that I wanted to set it then and I I wanted to think really about family businesses um, and and specifically now in, in 2021, thinking about family businesses that are also trying to stay alive and live through that pandemic. But I really wanted to be able to look back on 2008 in order to wrestle with and think about how we move forward from 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 that fear and, and resentment that I that I know so well in the Midwest. So there's this clear sense for the patriarch of this family and the man who's run this this exterminating company that the ground is kind of shifting beneath him economically and, and also racially. Tell us a little bit about this character, Robbie. Robbie is absolutely beloved. He's the patriarch. He has been holding the family together. He's been really in a in with with good intentions hiding a lot of the financial struggles that the business has gone through so that he can provide for his four daughters, for his wife, for his community. Um, but he's also, I think, the most problematic member of the hive, right? He longs for a past that's that it's it's really about wrestling for for power. He liked a world that was made for him, and he sees a world that's changing. So I understand that fear in him, but it's really Robbie's sudden death that makes room for the five women in the family to to grow from that grief. 
It was interesting. Um, Robbie's second oldest daughter, Jules, she falls in love with a black man. And most of the family seems like they're they're supportive of this. But there's this sense of, oh, it's so good your father's not here to have to deal with this. Um, what were you exploring there? It felt like the rest of the family ended up being receptive. They, they were. And I think that's, that's very much what I'm playing with in this in, in the hive is perceptions versus realities, the way that we believe people are going to react versus, you know, how open their hearts can actually be. Um, so I think Jules is surprised um, by her family's reaction. But, um, you know, and they don't really know how Ravi would have felt about it. But I think oftentimes in families we have, and in our culture too, we have these categories. This person does this, this person thinks this way. And what I'm trying to do in the novel is really open up more nuanced conversations, right? I think that's a big part of what's leading to our political divide in the country now. Um, And I I think The Hive is is a perfect read for that politically divided country and this actually moment. I I hope that stories and and stories like Jules's um, can help us heal. We can have access to worlds that we might not otherwise really spend time in. So you're almost like perfectly placed to explore this in that you have one foot in this world that you grew up in, small town Missouri, Hannibal, you know this milieu, and then you're living there in Washington, D.C. Do you feel that the people that you live with now, um, that they don't really have a full understanding of, of what it's like back in Missouri? That's a great question, Sarah. Um, I don't know that any of us really know what it's like in someone else's shoes, right? But the question is, do we, do we have compassion and do we have curiosity about what someone else's experience is like? I think that um, I've lived 25 years you know, in the Midwest. Um, I've lived a, more than a decade now on the East Coast. And you're right, I have this um, unique position to be able to traffic class and explain it to, to many sides. Um, I'm also the first in my family to earn a college degree, and now I teach actually at a university. And so the distance between the rural road um, actually outside of Hannibal, Sarah, I must admit, um, in in the New London Territory even, we lived way out in the country, Hmm. but the distance is pretty vast. And I hope that stories can help sort of bridge that distance. Um, But we do. I think we often misunderstand each other and that and that we are not spending as much time as as perhaps we could be being curious and having compassion. I think empathy is really a writer's superpower. If you can't create characters who are authentic and all their flaws on the page, they, they won't be as compelling for readers. And I, I think that stories can help um, make us better, really. Writing certainly makes my own humanity you know, expand. And and I write about that Midwestern community that raised me and that I'm proud to call my own. But I think loving something sometimes means questioning it also. Mm -hmm. So as a reader, I do find that the novel is the best way for me to empathize with another world. As I'm sort of walking in somebody's shoes as I'm reading a book, I understand them in a way that allows me to be a better person in real life. I can can almost hop into their shoes again when I meet somebody like that and, and relate to it because of a book. But being able to do that for characters like the family in your book, it's only possible if publishers are willing to tell these stories. Do you feel like there's an appetite um, in the big publishing houses to have these sympathetic looks at these characters who are living in, in frankly, unglamorous places outside of New York? And, you know, this is not a novel set in Los Angeles. Are they up for that? Uh, it, I think that's a fantastic question for the publishers. Um, so far for my work, they're, they're, they're receptive to it. Um, I do think that publishing has to become more diverse in, in many ways, and class is one of them. 
And I think also universities um, need to teach more, you know, rural literature and really privilege it because there's so much to say about, you know, family businesses that are the backbone of our country. And I think also what happens that I've experienced uh, in the university system is that much of the scholarship that's being written is about more urban novels, right? Mm -hmm. And so that, that it, you know, becomes a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so I, I'm hoping that that changes. So you didn't have to do much research into the pest extermination business. It sounds like this is something you grew up with, you know well. But you also have um, a pretty big part of this plot here involves the matriarch of the family, Grace, who gets involved with the survivalist community. Now, this community, they're sometimes called preppers. And this, frankly, is the term that I would have known going into this book. I learned in your book that some people consider this a pejorative. Do you know why that is? Uh, this was such a great community to explore. And, and Sarah, I really appreciate that question because I spend so much of my novel writing doing research and, and questioning what I actually think I know, right? I was raised in Hannibal with all of these Mark Twain myths around us. And, and part of my first novel was going back to try to figure out what do I actually know versus what I think I know? What does the research say? And I had to do the same thing actually with, with the pest control industry. Mm -hmm. I was raised in it, of course, but it's changing all the time. And I was more interested in the ways that pest control is working in conjunction with the land and in conjunction, you know, with without just, um, you know, conventional resources of chemicals, but but actually considering our food supply, right, considering how and, and that actually led me to prepper camp. I actually went there um, to understand Grace's character, which is something I have to do often when I'm writing experiences that are that are different than my own, right? I think we're only limited by what we can actually imagine. So I actually went to prepper camp. It's a real thing, Sarah. I'm not making this part of it up. Um, it's a three-day wilderness skill building workshop. It's in rural North Carolina. And I was really asking that question for Grace about the line between preparedness and, and paranoia. And I went to the camp thinking it was going to be more of a gun show, more of the what you see on Doomsday Preppers. But that is not at all what I found there. They were very much almost like a hippie camp. And the fellers, I think, would fit in well there. There was a workshop where we walked the forest and they taught us what we could eat. They learned about beekeeping and composting and solar energy. And Grace prefers the term survivalist um, because she wants to live in conjunction with the land. Um, but she believes that there are threats everywhere that don't you know, really actually exist. And I... For Grace, what I was trying to figure out is where does that fear justify sort of an othering that allows us to, to dehumanize? And I think we've crossed a dangerous line. And, and Grace gets pretty close to that precipice. Mm -hmm. She's a She listens to a lot of Rush Limbaugh. She finds herself getting, getting very concerned and, and worried that the end is coming. And yet she ends up being pulled back. It's, it's her family that pulls her back. I think this happens really to all of the women in the novel. Um, she's a fierce mother and she'll protect her family. And I get that. Uh, but she has to really face and, and to fix herself before she can actually save the hive. And this happens to all the women in the novel. There is a way that Robbie's death and his and their own grief kind of opens up new growth. And and I, I find that to be true, right? And so each of the women in the book really have to to they're each on their own journey, right? They have to discover so much about themselves um, in order to to keep the family's survival strong. And I have to go back to this prepper camp for a moment because this was just, it was such a, a fascinating set piece in this book. And now that I know you were there, did they know that you were there as an author or were you there just blending in, taking notes? No, oh, I am not a journalist. Um, so I, I do um, 
I was not there in any way, in any capacity except curiosity. Uh, but they knew why I was there. I was certainly taking notes. Um, so and, you told them, I'm, I'm not worried about the end of the world. I'm, I'm writing about a character who is. Right. And it was actually very unusual that I was there from D.C. One of the first maps that they put up actually showed the United States, and, and they went through several scenarios of disasters. And uh, they they don't spend a lot of time trying to uh, save D.C. They uh, were, were pretty pleased and, and okay with it not making it through the apocalypse, but also because of um, the target, I guess. But, was that um, hard to have empathy for? I mean, they're, they're rooting for the place that you live to be wiped out, or at least they're okay with it. You know, for me as a writer, my job is to is to ask those kind of questions, right? Like what would lead someone to have so little compassion and empathy for someone else that they would actually want it destroyed? That to me is, is a fascinating line that's, that's incredibly dangerous as a human to cross over. Um, and so I, I'm asking those questions too, but it really did surprise me that so many of the values of preserving the land, right? Of, of wanting self-sustainability and taking care of yourself and working hard, those those foundational roots makes a it makes a lot of sense to me. Growing up in a place like Missouri, you know, where I was raised to to do the same, I think I take those values now and I apply them to you know the my career as a writer too, which which requires a lot of wrestling with plot on the page and a lot of mistakes that you have to correct and and good intentions also. So it 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 didn't. Um, the community there didn't surprise me as much, but I, I did find their fears kind of fascinating and a, and a bit frightening. We're talking today to Melissa Scholes Young. Her second novel is The Hive. It's out now. We have a link on our website if you want to get a copy. Um, she's also doing a reading tonight at Left Bank Books. We have a link for that if you want to join in. That happens at 7 p.m. tonight. It's happening virtually. You can join via their Facebook page or via the link that we shared. Um, and Melissa is from outside Hannibal, um, which is kind of, uh, you know, these, these sisters are growing up in this small town. They're in Cape Girardeau. The second sister, Jules, she ends up going away to college. She, like you, Melissa, she's the one who ends up being this first-generation college student. She goes there, and then she ends up dropping out. And I thought of her when I returned. After I finished reading the novel, I went back and read the epigraph that started it. This comes from Louisa May Alcott. Quote, I'll try and be what he loves to call me, a, quote, little woman, and not be rough and wild, but do my duty here instead of wanting to be somewhere else. And for the first time it hit me, Jules, this character, is she the Joe March of this novel? And were you consciously mirroring Little Women in, in some ways? I appreciate that you noticed that. I think that I'm, I'm always channeling sort of classic stories that, are, that, I, that I read you know, as a child and I was looking for. And, and it is, I think, it's definitely a parallel with the sisterhood of liberal women and, and strong women really struggling with the conventions of patriarchy and poverty and how those conventions restrain them, right? The father is also absent um, in Little Women and, and there's a grief about the war, but in some ways, the story is about the women and the way that they grow from that grief and, and really actually learn their own strengths. And I think that's part of what happens with Jules when she goes to college also is it's about exposure. And so when she leaves the hive, she has an opportunity to look back and she also has an opportunity to see worlds and meet people that have experiences different than her own. And if, if that expands her humanity, if that expands her thinking, um, I think that's a good thing, right? 
Absolutely. Um, and, <laughs> I think so too. Uh, but you know, we not everybody has those those opportunities. And Jules is a first generation college student who drops out because of financial reasons is a story that I know very, very well. It's a story that I hear again and again from first gen students. We have this idea that, that if you've made it to college, then then the, the playing field is absolutely leveled and it's just not true at all. Right. First gen students are very much living in a very foreign land. And there's, we don't know the language, we've packed the wrong things. Like it's a, it's a very, um, it's a great distance to actually travel. And I think that especially during the pandemic, um, first gen students have dropped out in record, record numbers. And I'm curious about your own journey since you traveled that yourself. You know, Jules goes in thinking she needs to be a business major. She ends up following, falling in love with literature. Was that at all your trajectory? Did you always know you wanted to be a writer? So I've always been a storyteller. Um, I, you know, I was raised in Hannibal, born there. My family lived out in the country, as I said, and, but there weren't a lot of, you know, books in my house. We worked every day, all day. We made ends meet and reading was more of a luxury that we couldn't always afford. Um, I went to Monmouth College. I did intend to be a business major, but I, I don't think that I ever thought I would return to the family business. Um, but I studied history because I like to learn about the worlds outside my own. And, and those were the great books were, right? Those were, um, where I was exposed to the most amount of things I didn't know. And, and I think part of that is the curiosity of a writer too. When you see something that you don't know, do you reject it? Are you scared of it? Or do you, do you go you know, faster into it? I've, I've always um, poked at things. I've always asked too many questions. Um, so I studied history um, and then I, I actually moved to South America. I lived in Brazil for a few years and then I taught high school and then I decided to devote myself to writing and I returned to the Midwest and earned an MFA um, at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale, which is closer down to um, where the hive is actually set. And, uh, and closer to St. Louis as well. And so that sort of launched you as a novelist. Your first novel just got great reviews. This new one is just out. It's, it's almost too soon for reviews at this point. But I'm curious about your experience in writing it. The second novel is cursed for so many great writers who have promising debuts. Was this one hard for you to write? I think all novels are hard to write, Sarah. <laughs> I'm actually, I'm sure uh, that's I true. <laughs> I wish I knew some secret, but they're all, um, I, I'd also like to tell you that I learned so much writing my first book that it transferred to my second book, but that's not true either. We're in a pandemic. And so uh, even launching a second book, um, the learning curve was was very, very steep. And really, it's a, it's a completely different novel. Flood is a, a retelling of Tom and Huck's famous friendship as female. So in Flood, I really wrote the story that the way I always wanted it to be, right, as a, as a, as a young girl growing up in Hannibal. Um, but in The Hive, I, w- I was looking at something much more ambitious. And I was really interested in the family dynamics. Um, the Feller family, you know, is one that all readers, I think, can relate with. And I hope they cheer them on. Uh, the, the sisters sometimes disagree. Some of them make very poor choices. Some of them are lost on their path, but, and they struggle with money and agency in their own lives. But, but they do stick together. And so I was writing a story that had so many different point of views in the hive. And in that way, I think it was was perhaps more ambitious to write. Five different point of views is a lot like writing five different novels. And I can't say that I recommend it. I would not <laughs> recommend it again. Well. Um, but I, 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 the publishing industry, the reviews so far have been really fantastic. And I'm so very grateful that, that readers are embracing the hive. I do think it's, it's a right moment to talk about a politically divided country. And so this story, I think, opens that conversation. 
Yeah, I mean, you might not recommend the experience of writing a novel with that many characters, but I got to say, I just really enjoyed this. This family sucked me in. Uh, initially, I was like, Cape Girardeau, pest extermination, and th- those aren't necessarily my topics. I ended up loving all these women and, and rooting for them, and, and I just loved how you brought it all together. So I think Thank your, your you, hard work has paid off. These five perspectives are all great perspectives. I appreciate that. I really, really do. Thank you. Well, Melissa Scholes-Young, I want to thank you so much for joining us today and and sharing about this novel and and sharing about your life as well. Thank you for having me. So Melissa's new book that I was just raving about, it's called The Hive. She'll discuss that tonight in a virtual event. It's hosted by Left Bank Books. It begins at 7 p.m. We have a link on our website if you want to join that. That is stlpr.org. You can also find Left Bank Books' Facebook page, and you can join in live. And before we leave you for the day, we do have one last piece of news. You know Mike Schrand as the host of Morning Edition here on St. Louis Public Radio. He's also a musician. Today marks the release of his first solo album. It's called Late Bloomer. Here's one of the tracks. It's titled, These Things Take Time. There's a perfect opportunity To set things right The way they ought to be That's our Morning Edition host here at St. Louis Public Radio, Mike Schrand. You can find his debut solo album on Bandcamp. Happy birthday, Mike. Tomorrow on St. Louis on the Air, another all-white jury has been impaneled for the former cops accused of beating an undercover colleague. We'll dig into the law around that issue. We'll also explore a recent COVID-19 death that has shaken the community. And we'll discuss why sexually transmitted infection testing is way down. It's not good news. More reporting from the St. Louis on the Air team is available at stlpr.org. And never miss a conversation by subscribing to our podcast. Just search for St. Louis on the Air, where Ever you get your podcasts. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Thank you for listening. I'm Sarah Fenske. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.